1: chant or teaching and it said that it's uh, the entirety of buddhism in a nutshell and like a lot of chinese texts they back translated their texts into sanskrit to make them seem more traditional Um, but actually it's it's a chinese text and um, um, one of the ways that i interpret the heart sutra and that i hope you can begin to meditate on is it's a chant that really describes the end of fear and associates fear with having walls in your mind. Grant, if you get cold, you can always just close this. And, um... One of the reasons why there are so many walls in the mind is because of fear. And one of the things that reinforces the walls of our mind is fear. And the fear comes down to um, our inability, really, to work with greed and with anger and with ill will. And... um, Sometimes I like to think this practice is just watching the waves of greed and anger and ill-will and confusion coming towards us. It's kind of like when you stand on a beach and you watch waves coming towards you. And at first it feels like there are waves coming towards you. Um, But then you also notice that the sand you're standing on is changing. And uh, the trees maybe behind you are changing. Coconuts falling. And, um, and then also you're changing, and so the change that's happening uh, is happening within and it's also happening without. And a simple way of really understanding that is um, um, that, that these patterns of greed that are in you but also in the culture, they're never going to stop coming. Um, and the only thing that changes in the practice is that it doesn't matter anymore you know I don't know how many of us we we practice and we think that the greed and our anger is just going to stop one day Um, but actually it doesn't stop it just doesn't matter anymore it doesn't matter in the way that it has mattered in your life and um maybe this week uh, you've also had the desires of the hungry ghosts like greed operating in your life maybe your own hungry ghosts have been stuffing themselves you know if you don't get that car or that iPad um, you'll be fine I went to an anatomy class last night and um, it was interesting uh, watching the dynamics in the classroom when the teacher took out a skeleton and started talking about how um, in there are certain skeletons designed in certain ways that make certain poses easier and other poses maybe even unattainable so an example he gave is a uh, Young girls now in London who apply to go through ballet training get x-rayed in their pelvis to see whether their legs, their femur bones, can rotate externally or not because of the genetic shape of their pelvis. And if they can't rotate externally in the way the ballet wants them to, then they tell them it's not worth doing seven or eight years or ten years of training, starting at six or seven years old. because. Um, you'll hurt yourself because the uh, aesthetics of the ballet position that require external rotation of the femur bones um, are not possible for some body types. And um, then to see in the room this kind of mixture of relief that, oh, I don't have the body type actually to do certain poses. And then also this frustration. Well, then what am I doing? (laughs) You know? And um, I think it's so sad sometimes when um, we get so hooked on the geometry of the form of our practice. um, And there's no internal uh, practice going on that recognizes how underneath the way we practice is a story we have about what practice is going to do for us. And that is greed, actually. And it's materialism. And... um, It's the opposite of what the practice is pointing at. But likely, if you have a good practice, it'll show you that. (laughs) And um, I think it's important to understand that, that what practice is, is not just changing your thinking. It's not just about changing how you think. It's about seeing how you think. We talked about this a lot. Sometimes I I get all these classes. I've taught every day this week, it feels like. And and, um, I taught in Vancouver on the weekend. and Mostly in Vancouver, what we worked on was gazing all weekend. We just worked on how to use your eyes. And I think we did this on Tuesday night a little bit. And One of the things I talked about on Tuesday night was how in all the yoga poses, and especially in the sitting meditation, there's a gazing point. And I think this is actually a mistranslation. We always say there's a gazing point. You know, your eyes should be looking at something. But the word, and I've been thinking about this every day, but the word for gazing is drishti. And what you're gazing at is not a point. In Sanskrit, it's called desha. And the word desha means a field. And I think this is really important. The example I gave on Tuesday was... um, uh, just different countries that have the word desha or desh in them, like Bangladesh is the field of Bangla, right? So a field um, doesn't have a singular point. It has a foreground and a background all mixed in. And when you use your eyes in a way that your eyes get still, then the field gets wider and deeper. And then your eyes are literally not being greedy. Does this make sense? And that's why I think it's so good to sit with your eyes open because you train your eyes to be relaxed and to be at ease. So then you don't pick out one particular thing in the field. Everything in the field is equal. And um, this is helpful for your breathing but it's also helpful for the patterns of of your own mind. And I would say that this is the practice of the first limb, which is honesty and nonviolence, even with the way you look. I don't mean the way you look, but how you look. I mean, <laughs> how you go about looking. Um, So when we sat together uh, last time we met, and we spent the day sitting together, in a way you could say this is really the heart of honesty, is really looking clearly at what's going on. And it's so interesting, and I hope that you notice this, especially those of you who are a little bit newer to the practice, that it's hard to look honestly at what's going on from moment to moment. What we're doing usually is we're getting bigger than the moment. And we're deciding whether we like it or not, whether this is good for me or not, whether it's going to get me something. Like maybe I'll get enlightened. You know, the problem with all these terms like enlightenment is they're nouns, you know? when really they need to be verbs. You know, enlightenment is something you express. On Tuesday I said to Nadia, when you put away the zabuton, put it away with two hands. And uh, you don't put it away with two hands because you're going to get a medal for being like the perfect student. And you don't even put it away with two hands because it looks good. You put it away with two hands because then you're using your whole body. And then that activity is enlightened activity. And I want to connect this a little bit to not stealing. So I think on the first day, one of the things I said about uh, studying these precepts is that there's three different levels. The first level of the precepts is the literal level. So that's the level like with the first precept, you know, don't kill, (laughs) just don't kill. That's the first level. When you go around in your day, don't kill. Or, don't steal. You know, if there's a pen lying beside you, don't take it. And um, I remember once uh, having a monk come and visiting Toronto in the early days of center of gravity. And when we walked across the street, uh, he, he stopped. And then he pulled me back. And then we went to the end of the street, to the stop sign, and then we walked across the street. And there was a school there. And he said, if you just walk across the street and other kids at the schoolyard see you walking across the street in the middle of the road like that, then they'll do it. It's such an interesting way of thinking about your actions. Like, it wasn't about my safety or his safety. It was that maybe somebody would be watching. And if Nadia puts away the zabuton, really, really... Carefully, other people will put it away really carefully, not because they see how the Zabutans put away, but they'll watch her actions. Just like when you see someone next to you bowing, or you watch the way they sit, or the way they chant, you you can see the level of their practice. And so this is the literal level of the, the precept. And then the next level of the precept is the compassionate level. So with regard to not stealing, it's not just not stealing. It's not stealing because it's not good for you. The person who really loses when there is stealing is the person who's stealing, actually. You know, I don't know if I told you the story, but you know, last fall I did a little book tour and halfway through it I was at LaGuardia Airport in New York after teaching there for a few days. And my computer got stolen, right out from under me. No. So I went to the police, which were, you know, 40 feet away. And I said, you know, my computer's stolen, can you look on the video to see if we could find the person, you know? And they said, no, there's no camera right there. You know, I said, well, it's gotta be someone right here, you know? And they went around and, and checked, you know, the person who was cleaning the bathroom and every cart they could find. And, and he said, no, we'll have to take a, uh, a report, and there's a good chance we'll find it, actually. Because um, when someone goes in to get the computer fixed, uh, Apple will have a record, of, and, and we can find the person somehow. There's a chance of it. So I said, okay. And, and I was watching the, the policeman, you know, and he was so uh, big, and maybe because he had one of those bulletproof vests on, you know, And his posture was really dreadful. And I kept looking at his gun. And at first it was like, wow, that belt must be so heavy, actually. And then um, I kept looking at his gun and he said, so what's your address? And I told him my address and he's filling out the report. I'm looking at his gun and, you know, I've never handled gun. And I've never really been around guns. and They're scary, actually. And then you think this person could shoot somebody. And the responsibility it must feel to wake up in the morning and put on your gun. Maybe some people put it on and they feel really good about themselves, you know. And then he's saying, you know, so what kind of computer was it? And I was thinking, oh, is 1,500 bucks, you know, I'm going to have to spend. on. And I was looking at his gun. And and then suddenly I realized, if this person gets caught, it, it could be really bad for them. Maybe they'll go to jail. Maybe they have a son who's as old as my son. Uh, maybe they really need the computer. Actually, I don't have a lot of money, but I-, I could find a way to get a new computer. I could get a new computer. Actually, having my computer stolen is not so bad for me, even though I had just written a-, a really good article that I still have never been able to rewrite. <laughs> um, but actually, I-, I kept thinking, you know, this is really bad for this person who might get arrested. And then I said to him, I don't, I don't want to fill out the report. And he said, oh, but you, you know, this is the protocol. And I said, I don't want to. I don't want, I don't want to do it. I don't want the guy to get caught. And then it slipped out of my And I don't want him to get shot. But I mean, what happened? Maybe they go to his house, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. He's just going to bed. The guy freaks out. He runs out the back door. And he gets shot. And he gets shot. And um, then I I saw the part that I played in the whole thing. And then I saw the part he played. And I, I kept thinking to myself, it's worse for him or her that they stole the computer. They have anxiety today. And if they don't have anxiety, then they're probably really good at theft and they probably don't feel the effect anymore. Of the theft. And that too is a worse punishment, actually, than anything really, is to not feel what it's like to steal something. And um, I remember when we were kids, uh, at lunchtime, we would go to this variety store and we would steal stickers. This was what they, they had these rolls of stickers. I, I don't know if any of you were into this, but like getting stickers at lunch was the coolest thing you could do before we discovered pot, and um, which didn't come too long after the stickers, actually. And um, we would collect stickers, and every once in a while, you know, the person wasn't looking, and you could just take a sticker, and nobody noticed, you know. But then I, I thought, as the year went on, that's a lot of missing stickers. Okay, one sticker, you know. But then it starts really adding up over time. And then I started feeling really badly and a bit ashamed to go in the store because um, we had all been stealing these stickers. And uh, it was so easy to do. And um, that's the compassionate level. If we're all really connected and you're really taking this bodhisattva vow to serve all beings, then how how can you steal from anyone? And what also is stealing? I mean, if we're not generous and we're greedy, then we're stealing. There's only so much oil. And if you take more oil than you need, that's less oil for the earth. Never mind for other people. And I, don't, I know nobody talks about this, but oil probably does something, you know, underground. Can you really... I mean, it's like in your body. If you took out all the synovial fluid, you know, it's not like there's just a hole there, you know. It, it actually serves a function. Maybe it's lubricating some kind of plate, you know. Who knows? And... um Never mind when you start taking tar out of sand, you know, and have to get rid of all the trees to do that, create trailing ponds, and so on. So, also, same with capital. If if you um, are trying to increase your capital as much as possible, it's not like you can just print money, although it's a popular thing to do, even legally. <laughs> that's less money for other people. Isn't it? If I try and get as much money as possible, that's less money for everybody else. Isn't it? And then does that make me happy? I don't even have to get into that. I remember when David Loy came to Toronto one of the things he he reminded people was, if you have money it's not worth anything. You can't really do anything with it. And he gave the example, if you had to burn it it couldn't keep you warm for very long and if you had to eat it it wouldn't really nourish you and um, he kind of went over the point again and again until I think people really started to, to really contemplate this and um, the last level of the koan is um, or the last level of precept is the koan is that every ethical um, value is a riddle, is a question. And actually, that's the level of the koan that intersects with the meditation practice. Because when you really sit, and you give up what you think the sitting is for, and what it's going to do for you, and whether you like it or not, And you really just show up every day. Um, And you even show up when you want to run away. We talked about this on Tuesday night. Commitment and flight. Then um, ethics become a kind of koan. Which is, how am I going to meet every moment? Really meet every moment. And so the way we've translated... uh, this koan not stealing is in a positive way, which is being satisfied with what I have. Which you could say is actually a practice which is the opposite of greed, which is gratitude. I'm so grateful for what I have. My teacher, Enkyo Roshi, always says, do you have what you need to practice? And it kind of reorders whatever you're obsessed with. (laughs) You know, do you have what you need so that you can practice? And you need um, a little bit of leisure time, then that's about it, actually. (laughs) My friend Mark Whitwell always says, the other thing you really need is a good floor. (laughs) You need to have a really nice floor. Wherever you live, you should make sure you have a... It doesn't matter how big your place is, but you need a really nice floor. Um, there's a story about this, where a uh, teacher and, and a student have a dialogue, and it goes like this. The student comes to the teacher and says... When someone who has undergone the great death has come back to life, how is it? So the great death is a metaphor for um, enlightenment. um, Right? The great death. How is it? What's it like? When somebody has woken up, what's it like? Or if you want to... I I like this idea of the great death, too. That when someone has really lost it all, They've shed all that shit that we carry around and bring to all of our moments of life. How is it? What's it like? And the teacher says, um, she can't go by night. She should only arrive by daylight. In other words, um, somebody who wakes up shouldn't then travel at nighttime. They should do everything in daylight. And in a way, this is a poetic way of reminding us that you have to express your practice in daylight. In other words, your practice becomes public, that your actions start to really matter, or also that you're not ashamed of yourself, that you can reveal yourself, who you are. And then your practice is visible, it's in every single thing that you do. Yesterday I went to this anatomy class, did I mention that? It was deep actually, this evening. I won't name, but I went to this anatomy class, and um, another thing that I noticed is that it was populated by people who um, are in a training to become teachers, yoga teachers and I was really interested just in the way uh there was um, not so much consideration of how people rolled out their mat. Some would just take their mat and just throw it out, you know. And then um, the way people were eating in the room and um, the way people were sitting or not sitting during the presentation. And, and I, I was a little bothered, actually, by the lack of mindfulness in the room. And um, I kept thinking to myself, here we are, we're studying anatomy we're learning about yoga and at the same time how we are in our own anatomy. I think actually teaches people more than you can even ever learn about your anatomy. And I, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, um, these are the people who are going to become yoga teachers. So what's important is how you walk into a room and how you roll out your yoga mat. One time I went to go study with Eric Schiffman. And uh, I, w- I had traveled to California, I was in uh, um, Santa Monica, and um, he was late for the class. And people were really upset. Has anyone here ever been to Santa Monica? Have you ever seen an upset person in Santa Monica? <laughs> yeah. Really frustrated. And uh, we were waiting and we were waiting, and people started packing up their things to, to leave. And waiting, and, wait. and finally he came in. And uh, he sensed the frustration in the room. He walked to the middle. This was a time when Eric used to, he used to teach in jeans and a sweater. And uh, he sat down, and then he rolled his mat out really, really slowly. And everyone's shifting around, you know. And then he uh, unzipped his bag, he took off his sweater, and put it in his bag. And then he fixed his block, he had a block, he fixed his block. And then he stood up, and then he went and he changed the lights. He just dimmed them a little. And then he turned the fans on. And he was really going slow. <laughs> and he was just loving every moment of it. And he, he, he basically uh, took maybe five minutes before he even really addressed the group. And everybody's so, you know, And I think he taught more in those five minutes than anything he could have said. I remember one time when Patabi Joyce came to Boulder, Colorado and he gave a public talk at the Shambhala Center and Richard Freeman introduced him. And the way Richard introduced him was Richard came and stood up beside Patabi Joyce and just stood there. And stood and stood until everyone in the room was completely still. And I would say it probably took ten minutes. And he stood and didn't say a word. Until people's alignment changed. Suddenly, everybody was aware. And you could feel like a zing in the room. Everyone just kind of showing up. There's a famous story of Thich Nhat Hanh visiting Spirit Rock a few years ago. Some of you might, might know, it, it's a well-documented story where there was like a thousand people up on the hills and Thich Nhat Hanh came and walked doing really slow walking meditation to his podium. And he did like a 30-minute walk. <coughs> and apparently people were on the edge of their seat watching him walk. And then he sat down And somebody handed him a glass of water and a tangerine. And then so he peeled the tangerine and really took his time. And then he ate a piece of the tangerine. And this was like the first 30 minutes of his talk. And so I was thinking about this last night. This is the koan level of our precepts course, right? Is you can think all you want about whether something's violent or not. But at some point, you have to put into practice what non-harming is, right? You can talk all you want about compassion, but you have to express it in the values of how you live. And then all the theory you know has to fall away for you to really do something, which is what's going on in Egypt right now. People actually showing up and doing something. (laughs) And how powerful that is, and there is no way to do it. You know, there's no ideological way to do non-stealing. So, I want to explore a little bit today um, the koan level of not stealing, because we all, I hope, uh, are living in a way where we are.